Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tej Talks. On today's episode, I have Innova Properties. You may be following them on Instagram. If you're not, I really recommend you do. Their interior design and the quality of their finish is awesome. We speak about, I think, one of my favorite strategies, actually, which is flipping properties, generating chunks of cash, and using that to then put into buy-to-lets, HMOs, whatever it is, long-term assets. So, you don't necessarily always need lots of investors. It depends your risk appetite and your structure. But by flipping, you generate this cash, which can be used elsewhere. Let's get by to let's first, build up you know, a passive cash flow, quit your job. But actually, there really is something to be said for generating these pots yourself with flips. Now, I use flips to generate profit that's going to pay off my investor's interest, right? So it kind of gets created out of nowhere as such. Obviously, it takes a lot of work. But I really like the way Innova deal with this and how they use it as quite an important strategy to build wealth and build equity for the long run. We also touch on their service accommodation, which, wow, does incredibly well. And also they have been quite hands on in their properties and they still sometimes are. And that's an interesting approach that, you know, a lot of investors on this podcast have said they will never do. I have the most reviews of any UK property podcast. So thank you so much to those who have left reviews. If you haven't, you just need an Apple device to go on iTunes or on the Facebook page, the Tej Talks podcast. Thank you so much. Jake and Lucy, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Tej, cheers for having us. Thanks for having us. It's good to have you on and I have to let everyone know that this is the first time you've done a podcast, which, you know, we were talking about off air, which is very surprising given your brand and how much information you post. Um, And I think the detail that you share, which isn't always that common in property. So this is a a Tej Talks exclusive, um, as it often is, as it often is. So uh, before we talk about all the amazing things you are doing in property, some of your gorgeous refurbs uh, and a very interesting uh, conversion project you have on, let's kind of talk pre-property. What were you doing before you got into property? Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting one because we don't have a huge uh, sort of pre-property story. We, we kind of have been involved in property one way or another since leaving university, really. So um, my sort of background is I grew up in, in Cornwall, uh, in a coastal town called Bude. And my sort of, I guess, my, my experience, my background has always been very hands-on. It's, it's, it's been sort of working on the tools. So my dad runs a kitchen company in Cornwall. So ever since school, I've been sort of working, you know, evenings and weekends on the tools, fitting kitchens, but also sort of wider sort of home improvements, whether that be bathrooms, you know, sort of complete rip outs, whatever that is. Uh, and then and then leading on from that, I've worked for several other sort of builders and construction companies. So it gave me quite a, a broad range of sort of trade experience, whether that be electrical plumbing, uh, carpentry, uh, whatever that is really. Uh, after that, I went to university in, in Cardiff, uh, which is where I met Lucy, and studied business management for, for three years, which is my other sort of 
I guess, interest. Um, you know, I'm quite, quite into sort of the trade side of things. You know, I enjoy making stuff and getting that sort of sense of satisfaction from, you know, taking a really horrible, you know, run down kitchen, uh, ripping it all out and then sort of standing back after, you know, you've done all the work and looking at what you've created. Uh, and then the the other side of sort of what interests me is, is sort of the business side of things really. So I decided that rather than staying in Cornwall and, and sort of, you know, spending my life on the tools, I was going to go to, to university, uh, study business and, and find a way to apply my passion for that sort of, um, hands-on uh, kind of stuff to to a business, really. And uh, yeah, that's where I met you, wasn't it, Luce? Yeah, so as Jake says, we met at Cardiff University. I grew up in West Wales, also on a seaside town. Um, and yeah, I mean, by the, our third year of university, we had actually bought a buy-to-let flat. Um, I mean, that was quite circumstantial at the time because I found myself in a position where I um, received some inheritance and I wanted to invest that money. And I thought property, you know, could be quite cool. So I started having a look around and there was a, um, a new build development sort of around the corner from where we were living as students um, and you know Jake fully supported me through that process um, and it was kind of one of those sort of off the shelf two bed flats everything was done it was all new so there was nothing you know it wasn't particularly hard work to sort of buy that um, and as we finished university we decided to go and live in Australia for a year and we did some work in Sydney and um, having bought that that buy to let was was really excellent because it meant that we had a little bit of income coming in each month. Um, and I actually completed on the property in Australia, so it was it was very hands off. Just kind of gave the keys to the letting agent, and and they let that property whilst I was in Australia. Um, and then upon our return from Australia, we just kind of sort of got our heads down and started applying for jobs and. And, uh, yeah, getting onto the corporate ladder, really, didn't we? Yeah, we always thought, you know, my, my, because of my background and obviously because you bought that flat, we always had the intention to get involved in property. But at that time, we didn't really understand all the different strategies and different ways that you could make money from property. Um, for us, it was the only, the only things that we considered were either you buy, a, you know, buy a, a house and rent it out or you buy a house, you do it up and you sell it. That's all we really um, understood. So, so with that buy-to-let flat that Lucy had, we kind of left that ticking along in the background and then just sort of thought, well, you know, that's great. Now we better start applying for jobs and all that sort of stuff that you do as, as a graduate. Uh, so I ended up sticking with, with what I knew, which was kitchens. So I sort of combined my hands-on experience in the kitchen industry with my business management degree. And I worked for a German kitchen company. And essentially what I ended up doing was running a franchise operation in the UK. So helping people set up kitchen showrooms. So helping them set up their business, training them around how to design, how to sell kitchens, how to fit kitchens and everything in between basically, as well as that sort of business sort of acumen that you need as well. So helping them with cash flow forecasts, profit and loss, business plans, all that sort of stuff. But Alongside that, we've always been sort of dabbling in properly alongside, really, haven't we? Yeah. Um, my I decided to pursue a career in 
HR. Um, so I spent a year studying my master's. Um, and yeah, I've been working in that ever since. But both of us have always had a bit of an eye on, on property, haven't we? And always sort of shared that, that interest together. And, you know, how, you know, before you said you weren't sure kind of, I, I suppose, how to make money from it properly, how to have a kind of strategy. Was there something or someone that kind of shaped your strategy when you were starting out? How did you know, like, what to do? So Jake, in his job, um, in his first job, spent a lot of time on the road. I mean, your head office was in Leeds, wasn't it? So you were driving for hours, you know, most days. And that was when you found podcasts, wasn't it? So Jake would come home and tell me about all these podcasts that he'd found. And that was really when we started, you know, educating ourselves on, on what we could do. For sure. And I think one of the catalysts for me was in university. So we we lived in HMOs as, as students, as you do, for, for three years while we were living in Cardiff. And I, I remember when our we had an issue. I think it was the door was broke or something like that. And our landlord, who we never saw, came around for the first time and he, and he rocked up in his Aston Martin and he pulled up <laughs> on the front road and he came in and we were chatting to him. He's a really nice guy and he, he lived in London. And on chatting to him, we... We understood that he had several HMOs in Cardiff, he had a few in Bristol, he had some more in, in London. And obviously, you know, studying a business management degree, I thought, hang on a minute, you know, let's just, let's just work out what this guy is sort of earning. So totaled up what, so we were living in a, an eight bed HMO. So eight of us in there and we were paying sort of, I don't know, 350 quid a month, I think it was, um, with no bills. So I totaled that up and then I timesed it by how many properties I kind of guessed he had and then worked out what his rough cost was being. And it was kind of like we all sat there like in, in, in awe at how much <laughs> this guy must have been earning on, on us. And don't get me wrong, the house was nice, but, you know, he, he turned up once and we probably spoke to him two or, two or three times over a whole year. And I think that really kind of thought that kind of, it was a bit of a light bulb moment for me, I think, that somehow, however that is, we need to get into property and uh, so obviously, you know, it was, it was great that you, you had your flat and that was ticking along. Um, but I wasn't really our first sort of uh, venture into property officially, was it? I, I think it was. Um, no, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't a strategic kind of um, property within our our portfolio. No. Do you so, want to go on to? Yeah, sorry, Ted. I was going to say, yeah. You know, speaking of the the first strategic purchase, then so you, you know, you saw what he was making. You, you lived in one of the houses. I mean, it's quite, you know, I think, especially if you're a student at the time to kind of see how much you can make. And it, it seems easy, of course. You see the Aston Martin, you think, well, there we go. And then, of course, you do it and you're like, oh, my God, what have I done? Um, <laughs> like, what was your first strategic purchase? Well, we, I mean, we went on to, to purchase buy-to-lets and, and HMOs, but actually our first kind of project where we were strategic was, I mentioned that I received some inheritance at a fairly young age. I also inherited a property with my sister in West Wales, and we were left with the decision as to what to do with this property. And we really didn't want to sell it because it's in a really lovely location with sea views and it's really beautiful house. Um, so we looked at the prospect of renting it out and the rent that you can achieve in the area is, is not particularly strong. You know, if you get a family in there, um, whereas it is a very popular tourist destination. So it just made perfect sense to convert the property into actually two um, serviced accommodation units. 
Um, so that's where our, we sort of first you know, took on a project, so to speak. And we were, um, as we mentioned, living in Cardiff. Um, and we spent a lot of our time driving down on weekends to put new kitchens into the property and give it all a fresh lick of paint and furnish it and then advertise it as a um, holiday let business. So that was our first sort of project, wasn't it? Where we started, um, you know, really getting an income from it as well. And it's one of those, it's the typical first project where you probably make all the mistakes. It was, you know, every single thing we did by ourselves, you know, we were driving down, you know, we were finishing work at, let's say eight o'clock on a, on a Friday and then driving down to, to Tembe, getting here for sort of 10, 11, you know, getting up at six the next morning and, and working on this place. And um, I think whenever we've done that, we always... We, we always put ourselves under a lot of pressure, don't we, naturally. Just, uh, you know, we don't do anything by halves. And I remember we were here and it was, my brother was giving us a hand and we were fitting the kitchen and and the place was nowhere near ready. And you actually listed it on Airbnb, didn't you? Yeah, I was really keen to kind of get on with it. And, and I think Easter was coming up and I wanted to see if I could get a first booking for, for Easter. So I put it on Airbnb without any photos, just a description. And to our absolute surprise, somebody booked um, the one bed apartment that we were doing. Um, so that just massively gave us a deadline, didn't for it? For like 10 days time. And we, we still <laughs> we didn't have a kitchen, we didn't have a bathroom, we were doing everything ourselves. We had to go back to work on the Monday. And we were just, <laughs> it was kind of a mixture of excitement and dread because we're like what, what have we done um you know this is never going to be ready we're going to let this person down but in, in the end we just thought no do you know what we're just going to you know work through the night we're just going to roll off our sleeves and and just get this done and thinking back we even back then because of sort of i guess my background and my experience we you know everything was done to the best standard so our first ever project that we did we had like corian worktops with a mm. seamless um sink you know, we, we went sort of quite high end, didn't we? And we actually, so my brother and I were fabricating the coin ourselves. I remember it being wow. like sort of two o'clock in the morning. We're there in the, in the pitch dark, sort of fabricating this coin outside. <laughs> you know, you, you basically bond the sink and you do all this prep work to it to, to basically fabricate it. And we were doing all this. And you were there with like a roller and a, and a, and a paintbrush painting the other room, weren't you? And it was, it was mayhem. But we just we had there. to get it done because, you know, squeezing everything into weekends. Um, we would rather have just worked really hard and got it done than sort of elongated the process. Um, but it was, it was well worth it, wasn't it? And it's been an amazing um, addition to our portfolio and it's brought us in a really healthy income, um, which because it's a seasonal area, um, you know, most of our guests come in the summer naturally. Um, so it's not like we get a regular monthly income. It's actually something that we just let build up throughout the year. And we then have kind of a lump sum at the end of each year that we then can go and reinvest elsewhere. Um, and it's, it's been really good. Yeah, it's one of those. We, it was, we were you know, fresh out of uni, straight into the sort of first corporate job, doing everything by ourselves. We didn't, we didn't have the money to to just get the trades into do it did we either so we just had to with no choice just roll up the sleeves and get it done but yeah it's done well and it's sort of you know cash flowed upwards of you know 40 grand a year ever since really hasn't it yeah which and is that's, you know, and that's seasonal so that's that's yeah. saying something if if you know it, it's kind of got a high month and low month and it's still doing that um yeah i mean you know how long ago was this I think we were just looking at it actually before the podcast about that. So this was about, um, what, five years ago? Four years ago? 
Four years ago, yeah. Four years ago. And would you, you know, with your projects now, would you do the same sort of thing in terms of being hands-on yourselves or do you have a trades team and you manage it or...? It's interesting, actually, and we'll, we'll probably come on to it because it's one of the biggest challenges that we have because because we can do the work ourselves. It's it's, it's very hard to let go of that, and <laughs> yeah. it's probably been one of the, honestly we've had some some sleepless nights, some arguments, some uh, some some absolute you know pulling your hair out moments because we've chosen to take on work ourselves when really we just had so much on and we had day jobs as well and all this sort of stuff that really we should have brought in sort of trades sooner. We, we have now got teams that we work with. Um, at the minute, sort of fast forward to now, we have sort of, you know, multiple projects on the go at one time. You know, we have different strategies going on. Some of the work we, it's, it's, they're two bigger projects for us to do by ourselves really. And ultimately we would have stunted our growth if we'd have tried to do every project ourselves because realistically there are only so many hours in a day and, you know, between the day job and, you know, actually having a life and renovating properties, you know, you could only really do one, maybe two in a year if they were quite small projects, if you're doing it yourself. Whereas obviously working with trades has allowed us to start scaling up, but that's only really been over the last sort of two years. But um, I'm sure we'll come on to that in more detail. But yeah, yeah, we do. We do now have trades that we work with. Hmm, okay. And then, you know, from that point five years ago, you know, what was your sort of next decision? Because from looking at your Instagram, you've got HMOs, essays, bytelets and flips. So you do kind of everything, I suppose. So from there, how did you go about shaping, you know, what you wanted to do and how you were going to do it? And what was it that you wanted to do? Yeah, so so for the last sort of four years, we've had one core sort of overriding strategy, which is to flip properties. And our aim has always been to take the profit that we generate from a flip to buy uh, a rental property. And whether that be a buy-to-let, serviced accommodation, HMO, uh, we, we, we haven't necessarily been, you know, completely laser focused from the outset because to start with we didn't really understand all these different strategies we just thought we'll flip properties and we'll buy buy to lets that was our two property strategies that we we knew about and then naturally what's happened as we've sort of flipped more properties we've got better at it and we've started generating bigger profits from the flips that's allowed us to then reinvest that in bigger you know simultaneous projects so to start with the first flip that we did, you know, we might have made 30 grand um, after sort of, you know, all your costs and fees and everything. That's great. You know, 30 grand will buy you a, a buy-to-let flat in, in Cardiff that cash flows, you know, quite nicely. But then as we've sort of got more experienced and our flips have become better, then on the flip side of that, we've been able to go and reinvest that in bigger projects. So recently that's that's involved HMOs with high cash flow. Um, and we've also bought the chapel uh, this year as well, which is a, a great listed chapel that we'll be converting. Uh, and that one actually is going to be converted to uh, Airbnb because it's a great holiday location in Cornwall. We, that, we haven't necessarily kind of put ourselves in a box of we only buy buy-to-lets or we only buy HMOs. We've always just thought we flip properties and we reinvest the profits in, in you know, things that generate us monthly cash flow. Yeah. And our confidence has definitely grown over time. And we've, you know, we've, it took us a while to sort of get that power team as everyone talks about. And we've, you know, we've ended up having a really good relationship with our mortgage broker. And, you know, he's, we've put our trust in him to sort of use more complex 
strategies in financing deals, which, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have been necessarily confident to do that at, at the beginning. But, you know, as, as time's gone on, we've, we felt in a stronger position to, to take on those, those more sort of complex deals. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, is it a case of, so are you both still in full-time employment? We are indeed. Well, well I'm, I've, t- I've reduced my hours. So I just work four days a week now and I work one day a week in the business um, because I manage all of our tenants and I also manage our service accommodation units. So there's quite a lot of admin involved in that. Um, so we decided that we really needed a, a, a day in the week because obviously most of our um, time that we put into properties in evenings and weekends but I needed a day in the week where I could go and you know meet tenants and respond to those emails so we have cut back ever so slightly but we are pretty much both in full-time work aren't we yeah what's stopping you from going full-time into property uh it's a good question we will eventually uh get there I guess partly um it's we, we live off our wages and everything that the business makes gets reinvested. So it's allowed us to scale up quicker. So we, we don't need to be living off the profits of the property portfolio, which means that every, you know, the, the retained profits at the end of the year, that's, you know, another deposit for another property and it just starts to snowball. There will become a point where it's just not physically possible to renovate the amount of properties that we want to manage all the tenants and, you know, work in the day job. Um, but we both also enjoy our day jobs. You know, we both get a lot of satisfaction and enjoyment from what we do. And it's not like we are sort of waking up in the morning dreading going to work. You know, we quite like the day jobs. And, you know, we love what we do on the sides in terms of property. So as long as we can, we will maintain doing both, basically. I think that's, that's the, you mentioned two things there, which are kind of, they're not commonly done, or maybe they're, they're not commonly understood. So, you know, reinvesting that money in and in allows you to almost sometimes grow quicker. And, and like you said, then not have to depend on the business to pay your wages when in X many years it will pay that and then some. But also the technique of, you know, doing flips to generate cash to then put into assets. So it's kind of a, it's something that, I don't know, a lot of people say, oh, well, I want passive income. So I'm going to buy, you know, buy to lets, HMOs, essays, whatever. And yeah, I'll do a few flips on the side or oh, I'm never going to flip. I want to hold all the time. But I think it's an incredible strategy when it's done right to literally like create cash, you know, doing what we're doing anyway, which is buying and refurbishing and, you know, making shitholes look nice, basically. Um, yeah. It's a great way to do that. Have your own money. So, of course, there's no interest cost, et cetera, et cetera. And then be able to build a portfolio from it. Right. So. How did you, so obviously the service accommodation was, you know, an inheritance, but with your, you know, first flip or the first kind of properties you bought, I suppose, after that, before you had chunks of cash from um, a flip, how did you fund those? Yeah, so we we started off just with with a flat and we started off like probably a lot of people did um, by just flipping our own house, by flipping our own flat. We lived in it, we did all the work ourselves and then we sold it on. And, and that's how we, we started, basically. And uh, it was you know, a small flat in Bristol, and we'd uh, just saved up through, through the day jobs, really, and sort of retained, retained earnings from, from the business and just clumped it together. And that was the first one. And then as it sort of snowballed, uh, that allowed us then to buy 
uh, a buy to let flat, which then obviously then adds to the, to the monthly income. So then it just starts to snowball quicker and quicker. And what we do now is we, every flip, the aim is always, will we get another deposit out of this flip? So at the minute, we're looking at um, acquiring HMOs in Bristol. Now, the price of, you know, the, the types of property that we're looking for is somewhere in the region of 300,000, let's say, give or take a, a bit. Um, so 25% deposit on that, there's going to be somewhere around the region of 75,000. So every flip we look at, our, our key sort of criteria is, will we generate another deposit out of the back end of this flip in order for us to then buy another HMO that we can then convert? So that's typically what we do now. And it's, it's just built up over time. You know, the first flips that we did didn't generate that much, but we've just really narrowed down to, to know exactly what we're looking for. And also even to the point where we know the exact area of Bristol that we, we look for. So the last flip that we did was quite literally three streets over from our current flip. The loft conversion that we're doing at the minute, you can stand in the in the loft bedroom, you can look over the chimney pots and you can see the last flip that we sold in, in August because we know exactly you know, what those houses can be worth when they're done up to a nice standard. We know the agents in the area so we can speak to them and say, this is the work that we're looking at doing based on you know, current demand and what people are looking for. How much would you value this for? How much you know, realistically, if we had to sell it quickly, would it sell for? So we know exactly what the end value is going to be before we commit to spending all the money on the refurb, which is which is fantastic. And then we look in a different part of town for our for our sort of rental properties because the yields where we flip are awful because mm. uh, it's a great market for flipping, not so not so great for for rentals. So then we look at the other side of town for for our rental properties. Mm. You are taking over. I love it. So. When it comes to flips, um, I'm going to ask you for maybe a case study in a minute to give us some figures and, and to kind of break it down for people. But, you know, for someone who has never done a flip before, like, you know, where do you start? How do you find a deal that can be good for a flip? Is there any kind of, I don't know, secret sauce when you're sourcing or is it kind of a straightforward set of rules that you look for to tick off? Well, we have really just always bought our properties through Rightmove, just properties that are on the market. And it's a lot of, you know, hardcore searching for that great deal, to be honest. Um, So it's about definitely comparing the properties that are holding really good values in the area and, and selling for those sort of top end values. And then it's looking for those sort of golden nuggets that have, you know, circumstantially you know, maybe you've got a motivated seller um, and they don't come about very often. It's not easy to find them. Our last flip, well, the one that we're working on now, um, we were quite fortunate to get it for the price that we did. We actually think it probably would have sold for about 40000 more than we bought it. But we um, we actually viewed it on the day before the country went into lockdown. And obviously there was a lot of tension. I think a lot of the viewings that they had booked in on the property were cancelled. We were pretty much the only people to view it, weren't we? I think we were because we were hounding the agent. We Because we just sold one a couple of streets over, we knew what the end value was and we knew what this was going on at. And we thought if we can get in there before anybody else and see this property, we'll be in a position to offer when other people aren't. So we were hounding the agent, weren't we? Yeah. Calling them sort of night and day saying, let us in, let us in, let us in. And they said, no, we've got an open day, we've got an open day, you've got to wait. But we knew if we'd waited, the country would have gone into lockdown. 
property would have sat on the market for you know three months and then once lockdown was lifted as we know it would have been a frenzy it would have gone for way over asking price and we the margin just would have been squeezed on the deal so it's quite fortunate it's been at the right place at the right time really and the, the person selling the property certainly was motivated you know he wasn't very well he needed to sell that house it was in complete sort of state of disrepair so it, it worked for him as well um, and it worked for us um, and actually the agent that sold our previous property did reach out to us and, and said you know I'm not selling this house but this one would be really good I know what you guys are looking for so we kind of had the confidence from them as well that it was it was a good deal. It hasn't always been like that, though, has it? The first, you know, we've, we've made plenty of mistakes in the past. The first flip that we ever did, um, it was very much a case of scrolling through right move. We found a property with floral, you know, wallpaper or floral carpets and wood chip wallpaper. And we thought, oh, this must be great to do up because it looks old. And <laughs> yeah. very much we bought it. I don't even know if we haggled on the price or anything. I think we just went in and said, yeah, it must, you know, it must be cheap because it looks old and what, you know, it, mu- it must be worth less than those brand new ones around the corner. So we just bought it. And um, I think where we, where we were, I think where we did well was we've always bought our flips in prime areas. We've never tried flipping in places that we wouldn't want to live ourselves. So when that's come to be sold, the demand has always been there because people want to live in the areas. And because we've always done them to such a high spec, you know, our very first flip, we had quartz worktops, we had a instant boiling water tap, we had Miele appliances, we had a downdraft extractor, we had solid oak, you know, flooring throughout. Because we did it to such a high spec, the, the demand was almost instantaneous, wasn't it? And um, I feel like that's kind of served us quite well, really. It's buying in prime areas and, and doing these flips to a high spec. And people want to live in these areas and people will pay for nice things and people will pay £10,000 more than the property around the corner that's identical if you've got the bells and the whistles and you've got the quartz worktops and you've got all this stuff. So um, I think that's, yeah, I, I can't really say, you know, would we have been so successful if we'd invested in other areas? I don't know, but we've always stuck to what we know and what we know works. Mm. And, you know, if you didn't have that kind of experience of knowing your local area, what are some ways that people could figure out, you know, prime areas and what things sell for to kind of avoid the pitfalls of just buying? Yeah, it's a good question. And there's so much information on Rightmove, I think, mm-hmm. you know, you can, you can, if you really get to know how to use Rightmove, you can see, you know, what properties have sold in the area, how long they were on the market for, did they come off the market and go back on? There's so much sort of free information there. Um, and, you know, obviously agents have a lot of people kind of trying to use up their time, don't they? But if you can sort of build a relationship with agents, then I think that's really useful as well, if you can get some sort of genuine advice from them. Um, but yeah, I, I would definitely say just use the tools that are there in, in Rightmove. Also, I think we've we've stuck to our guns in terms of investing in areas that we know. And we, we did toy with the idea when, so once we started doing a bit of research, you know, do we go further afield? Do we go to Manchester? Do we go up to Birmingham? Do we go to, you know, to Leeds, to all these places? And that was the reason why we didn't, because it would have been a lot harder or you couldn't have said with absolute certainty, this is where people want to live. Uh, we know in our local area because our friends live locally and people, there are certain suburbs and there are, you know, boutique cafes and shops and 
you know, it's all very millennial and everyone wants to, everyone wants to live there. And you get a lot of like London money moving to Bristol. Mm. So there are certain places in Bristol where if you're moving from London, you want to be kind of, you know, close to the, you know, the city center, you want all the shops and the cafes on your doorstep, but you don't necessarily want to be sort of right in amongst it in all the sort of like high rises. So there's some key areas in Bristol that you would naturally sort of um, sway towards. Now, if you're then moving from London and then you're looking at the the larger houses in this area, you know, the, the big Victorian terrace houses and that sort of stuff, these look great value for money because you're used to London prices mm. and they're the sort of people that we're trying to target. And actually the last two flips that we have sold have both gone to people moving from London to Bristol. And it's almost been, you know, that is our key target customer. This is our area and we know who we're trying to target at the back end. So then we know what sort of spec they're looking for. They're looking for that Instagram finish. They're looking for those branded appliances that they know, you know, they're not, they're not looking for a, a cheap refurb. They're looking for good quality, aren't they? And you know, I really like that you mentioned that about all the kind of bells and whistles. And a lot of people ask, you know, what is the difference between, you know, a single let, buy to let sort of refurb and a flip refurb? Now, obviously you do both. Um, how would you best describe and be as specific as you like in terms of, you know, taps, appliances, sinks, whatever. How would you describe the kind of difference in a single let, buy to let, refurb and a flip refurb what kind of things should people be doing in one that maybe they're not doing in the other well because jake works in the kitchen industry and his dad runs a kitchen business we always go pretty good on the kitchens don't we because always we can empty. access them at a slightly more affordable rate so that's really good for us um so we, we never really scrimp on the kitchens do we in any of the properties that we do um but i think um, with a flip, we certainly go slightly more high end, don't we? We will, you know, try and put some of those because we always think of it in a way that what would we want if we were living here? Because we know that that's what our sort of target um, market will be thinking when they're coming to look around these these properties. They need to envision themselves living there as their long term home. Um, so we would certainly suggest, you know, going slightly higher spec on on the flip properties. For example, we would usually put sort of white wood plantation shutters perhaps in a flip, whereas in a bytelet or a HMO, we would maybe go for um, sort of slatted blinds. So I think that's quite a good example of the difference we would, we would go for. I think it comes down to your target customer and what they'd expect. If you've got somebody who's going to be renting a flat for £1,000 per month, if they're looking at other flats that are, let's say, 900 and 950 a month, you want to be comparable but slightly better to what they're going to be getting for the same money elsewhere. Whereas if you're selling a flip for, let's say, 600,000, that customer is going to be looking at other houses around that price point, And therefore, they're going to expect a higher finish, a higher spec. So it's all about doing the refurb and kitting the property out to meet the demands of the you know, the end customer, which is, you know, either a tenant or a prospective, you know, buyer. And I think, you know, the refurb has just got to be tailored to suit. And, you know, we have probably overspent on some of our flips. I would say we have gone a bit over the top and we probably could have achieved the same, you know, and uh, sort of sales price if we, you know, we didn't need that boiling water hot tap in that, you know, <laughs> flip we did in Clifton. We didn't need some of that stuff. Um, 
But at the end of the day, we, we made we made profit on it and it facilitated the next deal. So we don't we don't regret it, but we've kind of refined it now to what does make money, what do people expect? A nice kitchen, a really nice bathroom, the bedrooms, you know, freshly plastered. Um, you know, as long as they've got some nice, you know, feature walls maybe or some nice flooring, that you know, it's pretty that'll suffice in the bathroom. Bedrooms. And you always have to bear in mind that when people are buying these properties as their home, they're gonna have their own you know, desires to have certain colours or they may really want a boiling hot tap, but that's for them to decide and they can go and put that in themselves. So we c- you can't always predict what everyone's going to want. Yeah, and I think I, I think with at least what I found is with, you know, buy-to-lets, there's, there's always a kind of like limit. And it's the same with sales, of course, but there's always a limit in terms of like how much someone's going to, necessarily love it or fall in love with it where they want to pay like so much above market whereas in a flip you know it, it like you said it's your home you know you want someone to walk in and just be like wow um take my money i want this place and i think with rentals it's a little bit different so there's always that um there's always a reason to spend a little bit more on a flip you know with certain appliance makes and certain things that you know you just don't put in a rental which is important to to kind of notice the differences. So um, let's talk about the numbers of, of one of your flips, because I want people to kind of understand what is achievable. Um, but of course, obviously, the hard work that goes into it. So yeah, tell me about one of your flips. Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, so I'll, I'll go through the most recent flip that we've done. Um, and I've also got uh, another example as well, because they, they run simultaneously. So they, they sum up quite nicely how the flip strategy can tie in perfectly with a portfolio building strategy. Mm-hmm. So um, the most recent flip that we did, which was in Bristol's uh, three-bed terrace house, uh, we purchased it for 444000 mm-hmm. And uh, we spent, bear in mind, we did a lot of this work ourselves. Uh, so typically how we work is we do quite a lot of the work on our flips because if you can bring the cost down on the flip, then obviously you increase the profit at the back end. That then gives you more money to reinvest in the next one. So we do a lot of the work on the on the flips and then we get the build team to work on the, um, the buy sets and the HMOs. So the refurb uh, and all fees all in was 74,000, um, just marginally over. Uh, and then at the back end, we sold that for 596000 So that gave us, uh, after all costs, taxes, fees, etc., a profit of 86000 Wow. And where that ties in quite nicely is simultaneously, we had a HMO refurb on the go. And uh, the purchase price for that one was three two five. So this is separate, you know, different part of Bristol. Uh, refurb and all fees on that one was seventy nine, And the refinance came in at four forty. So money left in was 70,000. So as you can see there, on the one flip, you're making your 85,000 profit. And then on your, your HMO, you're leaving in 70K. So that flip has directly paid for that, that HMO. So that HMO now will, you know, cash flow gross, you know, 3,600 net, sort of around the 1,800 mark per month forever. And essentially, that's a free house off the back of our flip strategy. Mm-hmm. And when you bought this house, I mean, what was the condition like? This one was an interesting one. It was, again, it was, we become almost obsessive when we're sourcing. We, everything that comes on the market in Bristol is, 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 you know, we see, and really we turn over a lot of rocks before we find the one that that works for us. And we were quite lucky because this property actually wasn't 
that bad. It, yes, it had magnolia wood chip and the layout was you know, a bit rubbish at a tiny little pokey kitchen at the back of the outrigger and a, and a uh, breakfast room, you know, that was just waste space. But it wasn't that bad at all. It was perfectly livable. And I think it, it almost, it must have gone under the radar of the other investors because they probably looked at it and thought it's not that bad. So there's mm-hmm. no money to be made. But I think timing also played a part because I'm pretty sure we bought that on one of the Brexit deadline dates. I, th- I can't remember which one it was, but there was a Brexit deadline date. And I'm pretty sure we had the offer accepted again, like the, the day before we were supposed to leave Europe and everybody thought that the world was going to implode and all this sort of stuff. So I think it was a combination of being a bit brave, I guess, with the timing. When a lot of people probably sat on hands waiting to see what happened with Brexit. We were there trying to you know, snap things up. And also, I think we just saw an opportunity that I guess other people just overlooked, really. And how much, I mean, if you didn't do that yourself, so say someone who's listening who, you know, hasn't got the skills or time and they had to get a build team in, roughly how much more do you think it would have cost on the refurb? It must have cost... uh, Probably another 20,000 Probably another 20,000, I would say. Wow. Along those lines. Wow. And you you did the work on your weekends and evenings and whenever you had time off from work? Yeah. And Absolutely. we did we did have people support us. Um, you know, we didn't do it single handedly. My we, brother was drafted in a few weekends, wasn't he? And it? we had a, a sort of lone man builder, didn't we? Mm. Just sort of a one man team. Um he took the chimney breast out for us and helped us kind of open open out the layout. Um and we had, you know, plasterers come in and do the skimming for us. So we certainly didn't do it alone. But we did a lot more on that flip than we're doing on our current one. And, and we keep scaling back every time, actually. Um, but we did, we did do quite a lot, yeah. didn't we? To start with, I guess you've got, to do what, you've got to do what's necessary with the resources that you've got. And certainly for the first couple of projects, we, we never even contemplated things like, you know, getting private finance to help us with the refurbs or anything like that. We just thought, right, we've got 10 grand. We've got to do this refurb for 10 grand. So whether that, you know, involved us, you know, working every hour under the sun to get it done ourselves, it's just what, what we thought we had to do, basically. I think, yeah, the, the pressure of having, whether it's a deadline or whether it's a, a, a budget, you know, what, what, what choice do you have? You have to do what you have to do and, and you made that work. And I suppose also, well, given your experience as well, but, you, you know, a builder could never, you know, fool either of you because you're going to be like, pfft. We know exactly what you have to do. We've potentially done it. We've been in the industry. We've done X many properties. So it's quite a protective measure, I think, as well for like, I mean, I'm not saying everyone go out there and learn to plaster, but if you have a, an understanding or an interest in, you know, construction and refurbs and things like that, I think it protects you a lot from um, from bad builders. Did you say you had a second example or was the second example the HMO you purchased? Yeah, it was, it was just the HMO really, just to show how the two strategies kind of work in collaboration together. And, you know, moving forward then, you know, are you continuing with the flips to support the kind of portfolio growth? Have you kind of looked at something different or are you just taking this method that works so well and doing it over and over? We definitely enjoy the flips. Um, so we have no intention of stop stopping those, do we? Um, no. We might try and do it with slightly sort of cheaper properties um, so that it's slightly more affordable, but we, we don't have any intention to stop flipping. No, flipping is the thing that's got us to where we are now. And um, I, I just see it as such a, a great addition to any property um, you know, portfolio building strategy because 
it replaces any money that you leave tied up in a property or it generates a deposit for the next one. So if you've got you know, a, pro- a project on the go with investor finance uh, tied up in the deal, for example, if you've got a flipping strategy running alongside it, then you can use the profits from that flip to pay back the investor. And I just think it, it just gives you so many different avenues uh, of generating that chunk of capital that you can then use for whatever purpose you need. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly what I do. People always say, you know, well, you leave money in deals, Ted. How do you, you know, how do you cover that off? And it's, it's exactly what you said there, Jake. So, you know, going kind of forward with this flip strategy, um, are you, actually, I suppose my question is this, you know, the kind of property prices you mentioned, would you call them in Bristol, would you call them like mid-market or are they kind of high-end luxury type price points? I'd say sort of mid-market, wouldn't you? Because you've got the super prime areas of like Clifton, where to be honest, it's it's yeah, we, we don't have the funds to be flipping houses in in, in Clifton. So um, there's yeah. a couple of areas where you know some flats will go for kind of up to a million pounds. Um, wow. So we're certainly not at the top end, but it's a it's it's one of the slightly more desirable and high-end areas, isn't it? Definitely where um, people want... mid yeah, it's You know, it's where we would want to live. Uh, it's where, you know, people sort of our age and young families would want to live. It's, it's, it's a good area. And, you know, before you mentioned, you know, when you work with investors and then we just spoke about kind of finances and levels there. So, you know, do you work with private investors? Yeah, so we've started more more recently. So um, the first couple of years, we just did everything by ourselves, and then and then naturally, as we were sort of documenting our journey and our projects, and people starting to take interest, we started to attract some private investors. And typically, how we work is we obviously we, we do the flips, we generate the deposit, we buy the house, and then we raise private finance for the development. So whether that's a conversion from a family home to a HMO. We typically raise the money to do the refurb, which means that we've always got a minimum of 25% sort of skin in the game, so to speak. So when we're then refinancing that property, you know, we are we're quite happy to leave our deposit in the deal. It's always the investor that gets their money back, and then we leave our 25% in the deal. And that's typically works quite well for us because it means that yeah, we don't have to look for all money out deals, which don't really, well, if they do exist in Bristol, we haven't found them. Um, but it, it means that we're more comfortable going into that deal, knowing that as long as all of the refurb and all of the costs and the investor gets their money back, then we're happy with that. Yeah, I mean that that makes sense, and I you know I really like that you know we're talking about your strategy here being flipping to cover the cost of other things because it's just not spoken about enough. But you know it is so powerful. Now, even if you wanted to flip, and then say you wanted to take you know, 20% of the profit, for example, you know, to pay your wages. In my opinion, anyway, it's very similar, maybe better, like then, you know, passive income from a buy to let because you've got it all at once. You just need to budget it for the whole year. You've got no tenants to chase. You've got no maintenance. I mean, you know, flipping and getting say 50 grand profit or earning 50 grand from a buy to let over X many years. I know there's capital appreciation and other interesting parts, but I think what you're doing is you really are taking the best of both worlds here and, and just making it work, which I really, really like. Now, um, you, you obviously post on social media and I'll put your Instagram tag in the show notes. The, your interiors are beautiful. That kitchen with the, um, what was it? The flat Metro tiles in the diagonal way where it was like jagged edge at the top. 
That's it. So yeah. that, was a, that was a bespoke uh, handmade in frame shaker kitchen that was colour matched to Farrow and Ball's Denim's. With wow. the, yeah, it was it was tiles were a bit of a nightmare to lay though weren't uh, they? I laid them myself and I'll never do it again <laughs> I feel like I remember following your journey when you were doing that and you posting about them actually which is which is I, f- I feel like I was there next to you being totally useless obviously um, just <laughs> yeah. watching but that kitchen sounds as saucy as it as it you know it looks as saucy as it sounds people so go and have a look at that now my question from that is has social media been useful in any sense to you as a business uh, with absolutely without a doubt. So when we started sort of, I guess, taking this a bit more seriously and listening to podcasts and stuff, we, I guess we knew very early on that our money would only get us so far. So we thought, well, you know, how, how can we build uh, that sort of credibility and how can we document our journey so that somebody can just go and see a snapshot of what we're doing? And so we started documenting everything we did about two years ago. And I wish we did it sooner, really, because we obviously, you know, we almost missed out on sort of two years worth of, of refurbs and, and content, but it's brought so much, you know, we've, we've met, you know, angel investors through, through social media. We've made so many connections. So we're currently, um, part of the HMO mastermind that's run by Andy Graham and mm. Jade from B space. And, you know, the caliber of the property investors that are part of that group is just, you know, phenomenal. Some of the things that they've done and all of that, really, you, we wouldn't know these people if it wasn't for social media. If it wasn't for sharing our projects, seeing their projects, speaking on social media, you know, the fact that we're on this podcast, obviously we only know you through probably originally social media and, and, and talking and stuff like that. So without a doubt, it has generated us, you know, finance. It has, um, you know, made good contacts. And also it's, it's always good to share and speak to other investors and, because it can be, you know, especially when you're doing these projects by yourself and you're just there working till whatever, you know, time in the evening by yourself. Sometimes it's good to see other people doing the same, just thinking actually, yeah, there's a whole network of people out there doing the same thing, putting in the hours. And it's a really good community, I think, especially on Instagram, that uh, everyone supports each other. I never see any negativity. It's always, always very positive. And it's good to, you know, good motivation, good to learn from other people. I think that whole yeah, I think it's brilliant, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I have to wholeheartedly agree with you there. It and what you said there about no negativity. Yeah, spe- like Facebook. Yeah, it's full of it. But and LinkedIn. But Instagram in particular is just I don't know what it is, but the the property community on Instagram is so positive, so helpful, and yeah, I, it's priceless. You know, even if you didn't find investors from it, I think the kind of community aspect, the the mental health aspect, the kind of the that aspect is really really important you know and it's something that people don't consider enough so if i haven't said it before i'll say it again people who are listening get yourself on instagram create an account and just follow people and be inspired look at their beautiful interiors speak to them ask them questions invest with them if you want whatever um but instagram is super powerful so uh you know, property is something that a lot of us do for freedom, financial freedom, time freedom, whatever. Is there one thing that has that property has allowed you to do or it's going to allow you to do? Like, I don't know, travel the world or, you know, just wake up on a Monday and just chill. Or is there anything in particular property's given you? Well, it's not given us that freedom of time freedom yet because obviously we, we still work. And to be honest, it's the way that we do property, it's certainly not passive. You know, we are, we are doing a, a lot of it ourselves. So it's not, not going to stop time freedom. 
for me, what property has given me personally, it's, I've not found anything that gives you such a sense of satisfaction. You know, property is hard, it's very hard, but it almost makes it more rewarding. So I love nothing more than, you know, taking an old rundown house and, you know, absolutely painstakingly taking it, you know, back to brick and refurbing it and, you know, going for this really high end fitness and then standing back and looking at the end result. For me, that's one of the most satisfying things about the, the whole process is I just enjoy it, to be honest. Um, we both definitely get a great sense of um, achievement and mm. enjoyment from it. And, you know, I, I love picking out interiors and looking at floor plans and thinking about how we can transform this property. Um, and, you know, when it comes to the serviced accommodation, I really love to, you know, make sure all of our guests are happy um, and our tenants are happy. Like we really care about kind of our customers or our guests, don't we? Um, and we get a lot of, yeah, sense of achievement from it. Um, but I mean, on a more personal level, of course, we would like to have more time to be able to go and do more traveling. We've thought about potentially getting a camper van in the future and doing a bit of exploring of Europe. Um, and that'll come in time when we, you know, when things do become a little bit more passive for us, which isn't too far off. It's certainly within our grasp, isn't it? And we will that, do more. Yeah. It's that delayed gratification thing we're mm -hmm. working now. We know for certain, you know, we, we can, we can have that time freedom if we wanted it now, but we'd rather hold off, uh, keep, keep getting that snowball effect, keep growing it. And then in the future, we will have, you know, all the freedom that we want to work on projects that we want to, won't we? Yeah, and just working as as and when you want to and and that will probably still be quite a lot, won't it, knowing us. <laughs> but it's it's have it's working off your own timescales and your own sort of agenda, isn't it? Yeah. That's the thing. We, the, the curse of entrepreneurs, we, we make all this money, then we just reinvest it. We get all this time and then we just spend it again back in the business. So it's like, it kind of, it kind of never ends, but the camper van sounds good fun. That sounds, that sounds exciting. Um, so let's go into the quick fire round. What are the biggest three mistakes that you've made in property so far? Uh, okay. So I, I don't know if this is necessarily a mistake, but it's, it's probably worth uh, mentioning. It's, it, it's trying to do everything ourselves and it's not a mistake because it's got us to where we are now. But, you, and obviously you've got to do what you've got to do with the resources that you've got. But I think it's trying to get out of the habit of doing absolutely everything yourself as soon as you can because ultimately it gets you to a certain point and then it just burns you out you can't scale a big business um, if you are doing everything. So I think we've certainly uh, been uh, shifting our focus. Shifting our focus, we? definitely. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, I would also say, and again, I don't think either of us determined like regret this, but I think you know we mentioned our first flip. We didn't really do enough research. We didn't really go in fully knowing, you know, realistically what we were going to get at the end of that project. And um, we, we learned so much from that. And thankfully, it was still a success. And like I say, we, we certainly don't regret it. But it was something we learned along the way that we needed to adjust and say, okay, we won't do it like that again. Next time, we'll, we'll make sure we do more research and we really understand what we're buying um, in, a, in a more in-depth way. Yeah. Um, and I think as well, it's... <sighs> We never cut corners. We always do our refurbs to to a high end, but sometimes there can be the uh, the pressure of you know the finances or this you know this deal not stacking up at a you know twenty five percent return on investment anymore. Can I save money on the refurb here? And it's almost always coming back to bite us. 
And whilst whilst you're in that 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 process of refurbishing your property, once it's all ripped out, that is the time to spend the money. Especially, if, I mean, you, you know, you should never cut a corner on a flip. But if you because it's somebody's home, but if you're holding this buy to let for the long term, you know, if you've got the opportunity where the walls haven't been plastered and you can, you know, if like like with us for example, we renovate a lot of um, Victorian you know properties. So a lot of these properties don't have. Damp proof course, they don't have, you know, uh, insulation up to up to regs. When you're refurbing, refurbing that property, that is the time to do all that work because there's nothing worse than, you know, fresh plaster, paint, carpets down, then put a tenant in it, and then realizing, oh, you've got rising damp, and then all of a sudden you've got to have an awkward conversation with a the tenant. They've got to move out. You've got to get somebody in there to undo all the work that you've done and then you've got to you know inject the the damp proof course and then you've got a tank here and then replaster it all it's just a nightmare and so as you can tell we're, we're speaking for experience <laughs> on that exact exact scenario but we we genuinely had no idea that there was going to be rising damp in this room and it really shocked us didn't it and it just was a, a massive lesson to think even if you there's no sign of it you know if, they, if you've got a room with sort of three exterior walls that kind of thing victorian property we would we would always just go and tank just, now, just, we? just spend the extra money um, and then sleep easy at night knowing that that tenant is going to be nice and warm and there's going to be no damp or condensation yeah that's you know that's a really good point because there's certain things like that which are so core and like elemental i suppose to the fabric of a property that you cannot kind of save costs on yeah you can always cost engineer oh hey you were going to spend 150 pounds on a tap okay well let's get one for 80 let's i think there's other swag elements which obviously you can save money on versus something like that which yeah yeah it's just so core to the property so then uh, if you had to give uh three top tips to someone who's new in property what would you say uh, so I've actually wrote these down, but they kind of they do kind of tie into our mistakes. First one, just just don't cut corners in the refurb stage uh, to reduce costs. It will come back to bite you. Just just spend the money um, and do it properly, uh, regardless of whether you're going to flip that property on or or you know hold it in your portfolio forever. Um, there are certain things that you know insulation, damp proofing, that sort of stuff. It just causes you a nightmare. So always always uh, just spend the money and get it done properly. I would I would certainly say about you know finding people who you trust around you to support you you know I mentioned earlier our mortgage broker and you know we always run our deals past him before we fully commit and you know there's been several deals that we've seriously been thinking about buying and he's actually advised us against it because he said oh you haven't thought of this and you know your your exit strategy is not strong um, and that's been really I've been so grateful for his advice in certain situations um, so it's certainly about finding those people who've got the knowledge and experience that can support support your business mm, for sure and I guess also just just enjoy the process it's it's hard, uh, but that's what makes it so rewarding. Things go wrong for everybody all the time, and it can be very stressful. And some days you can think, you know, why am I even doing this? But stick mm-hmm. at it. Uh, you know, it almost it just makes the the end result even sweeter. The harder it is, just just try and uh, yeah enjoy the process really. Yeah, I agree. Great tips there with networking, and uh, yeah, you have to enjoy the process. Or you'll just uh, I you'll give you'll up. Insane. Yeah. yeah, you'll go insane. You'll be crying in the middle of a refurb, thinking, "What have I bloody done?" Um, <laughs> and lastly, what are your? I don't know. Give me three goals that you have for the future. They can be like you know, running a marathon, or you know, what anything. Well, 
Property-wise, we want to focus on growing our HMO portfolio purely for the income and the fact that we, you know, we've we've had great success with with ones that we have done. Um, my a personal goal of mine is I I'm kind of team camper van. I really want to get get that and do some more traveling as I as I mentioned before. Um, and also, we're looking at uh, next year. We want to buy our not. I'm not going to say forever home, but uh, we're going to we want to buy a home that we want to. You know, stay put in. Stay put in for a few years because um, we've, uh, yeah, we've moved a lot over the last four or five years. Many years living in building sites, washing up in the sink or washing up the bath, sorry, and all that sort of stuff. So uh, next year we're going to be uh, looking at, yeah, not not a forever home, but a a, a home that we're going to spend a decent amount of time in, so we can chill out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Good, you deserve it. And is there a resource platform app, bit of technology that you just can't live without? Yeah, we used a few actually. So uh, because we work together, um, we use Google Drive for a lot of our you know, folders and, and, and business and stuff. Uh, it's all stored on the drive. Xero uh, for our accounting, which is a game changer. Uh, once you start using Xero and it automatically pulls across all your bank feeds and you don't have to be keeping spreadsheets, it is amazing. Um, and then I also use Evernote just to make a note of everything. So, you know, gas meter numbers and electricity account numbers and you know if you're if i'm out on the road or if i'm not you know near the property and a tenant rings and they've got an issue with something and you need to call the utility you know provider there's nothing more frustrating than you know waiting on waiting on hold and then not having the information so if you've got it all on your phone you can do anything from anywhere so i think those three pieces of information have really helped us well those three apps have really helped us anything else i would say just more recently the discovery of Upwork as well. So we've started, you know, having some support from a from a virtual assistant and I didn't know where to begin with that. Um, but, you know, stumbling across Upwork or actually we were recommended to, to go on Upwork. That's been a, a great support as well, hasn't it? To massively free up our time on certain things. Yeah, Upwork is great. It, it's just such a nice, clean system and it makes the recruitment and the vetting and everything amazing. I'll put a link in the show notes for people. Um, Right. Where can people find you if they want to say hi or, or see what you're doing? Main platform has to be Instagram for us. Um, Jake mainly runs that Instagram page, don't you? But we're, we're on it every day. So we are Innova.property. And we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn, aren't we? On our website. Yeah. Um, Instagram's the main place. Uh, we always respond. So feel free to, to come say hi. It's always good to connect with people. But yeah, Instagram and then... Uh, yeah, if you're, if you're local to Bristol, we'll be on, well, all the networking events probably. So uh, you'll bump into that. Amazing. Please, everyone, click the link in the show notes and you will go straight to the Instagram profile. Well, Jake, Lucy, thank you so much for coming on the TED Talks podcast. It's been wonderful. Uh, and I hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks for having us, Yeah, thanks very much. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.